Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, former Florida Senator Bob Graham co-chaired the congressional inquiry into possible links between the Saudi Arabian government and the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and since 2002 has wanted the classified report released, which has finally happened. We'll talk with Bob Graham about his career and a novel he wrote based on the newly released report. The reason I wrote the novel was because I felt that there were some important unanswered questions coming out of 9-11. One of those was what was the full extent of Saudi Arabia in assisting the 19 hijackers? We'll look at some unique stereo view images of Florida. It gives the perception of a three-dimensional image. So if you can imagine the late 19th century, this was revolutionary. You know, here you could be sitting in your living room and be looking at the St. John's River here in Florida. And we'll discuss former Florida Governor Reuben Askew. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Senator Bob Graham can be called the hardest working man in politics. His 38 years of public service included two terms as governor of Florida from 1979 to 1987, and he represented Florida in the United States Senate from 1987 to 2005. In addition to that, he famously spent more than 400 days working other people's jobs, including days as a journalist, a fisherman, a construction worker, a truck driver, and in many other occupations. Bob Graham started his tradition of work days in 1974 while he was serving in the Florida Senate. I was chairman of the state Senate Education Committee, and I had been in some classrooms where I didn't think civics was being taught very well. I mentioned that to some civics teachers, and they said the only way you can find out is to actually go in a classroom and find out what's going on. So I accepted and ended up teaching 18 weeks of high school civics. It was a wonderful experience. I did, in fact, learn a lot about what was going on in a modern high school. But the most important thing I learned was the difference between learning by somebody giving you a lecture or reading it in a textbook and learning by actually doing it. So I got the idea there would probably be some other things that I could learn more about by doing them. I couldn't spend 18 weeks, but I could certainly spend a day. So that started it. Uh, that uh, teaching job was number one, and uh, 30 years later I did 
job number 408. As governor of Florida, Bob Graham focused his efforts on education, the environment, and jobs with significant results. For the first time in the state's history, uh, we saw our education uh, programs begin to move and in the case of the university system actually reach the top quartile uh, in the country. Uh, second, uh, in the environment, uh, we had a particularly aggressive program of land acquisition, added uh, hundreds of thousands of acres uh, of state ownership, which now are some of our most valuable environmental and recreational uh, lands. Uh, and then in economic development, as a, an indicator of our success, for the first time in Florida history, Floridians earned more money uh, on average than did the average American. Bob Graham left office as governor with an 83% approval rating and moved on to 18 years in the U.S. Senate. He served 10 years on the Senate Intelligence Committee before and after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Graham was one of the voices raised in opposition to the subsequent war in Iraq, which he says was one of his proudest moments as a senator. I wasn't proud at the outcome because I was fairly convinced that this was that it was not going to be a good outcome, uh, and that and that it was not going to be a good outcome because we've been led into this war by false information. The people who gave us that information knew or should have known that it was false. As a senator and member of the CIA External Advisory Board, Bob Graham had to submit anything he wrote about the agency for approval before publishing. He had two nonfiction books partially dealing with 9-11 significantly edited by the CIA. Graham's political experience clearly informs his suspense novel, Keys to the Kingdom. The reason I wrote the novel was because I felt that there were some important unanswered questions coming out of 9-11. Uh, One of those was what was the full extent of Saudi Arabia in assisting the 19 hijackers? Uh, number two, why would Saudi Arabia have turned against its strongest ally uh, to assist uh, uh, what was our and their great enemy, uh, Osama bin Laden? Uh, and third, why has the United States gone to such lengths to cover it up? Uh, the, I've tried in nonfiction to tell those story and have been frustrated by censorship, and so I decided I would tell the story as a novel uh, where the standards of, citizen, of censorship are lower since you're not representing this to be the truth. Uh, but in fact, 40% or more of this novel uh, is truth. In addition to writing his novel Keys to the Kingdom, the senator's focus since 2005 has been on developing the Bob Graham Center for Public Service at the University of Florida. My passion since I retired from the Senate has been citizenship. Unfortunately, by uh, almost any indicator, voting, uh, participation in civic organizations, joining with neighbors to solve local problems, citizenship has been in decline in America and in Florida. The purpose of the center is to try to understand that decline and then to reverse it. Uh, we have a number of programs, uh, including a very uh, active uh, undergraduate course, series of courses in 
public and civic leadership, which are designed to encourage uh, young people uh, to step forward and be part of the leadership of the public and civic institutions, which is such an important part of America. Bob Graham ran for nomination as the Democratic Party's presidential candidate in 2004 and has been considered as a nominee for vice president. He says that since he began his political career more than four decades ago, the nature of political campaigns has changed. Well, they're much more expensive. When I ran for governor in 1978, uh, I think my total budget for a first and second primary and general election was under $5 million. Today, the last gubernatorial campaign, one of the candidates spent more than 70 million of his own money uh, and about 100 million total uh, on the campaign. A second thing uh, is, it seems to me they aren't as connected to people. Uh, in my case, as with Lawton Childs, uh, our campaigns were largely built around getting to know and listening to the people of Florida, whether it was walking the state or working with the people of the state. Today, much of the campaign is run at long distance uh, through uh, TV ads. Bob Graham's father, Ernest R. Graham, was a cattleman who also served in the Florida State Senate, inspiring his son's political aspirations. I happened to have been born the same week that he was first elected to the Florida State Senate, so I grew up uh, in a political environment. My mother said I had a womb affliction for politics. So, yes, he was very influential and in an extremely uh, positive way. He had high values uh, and he honored public service and I tried to be faithful to his principles. We spoke with Senator Graham in St. Augustine at the Florida Heritage Book Festival where he was signing copies of his novel. In 2015, St. Augustine commemorated 450 years as the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in what is now the United States. Bob Graham served on the federal government's St. Augustine 450th Commemoration Commission. I'm a history buff, and I think if you don't know how you got to today, it's hard to try to lead people to tomorrow. Uh, St. Augustine uh, is a center of history for the Western world. It's one of the most important uh, cities uh, during the Europeanization uh, of the Western Hemisphere. And so understanding the history of St. Augustine uh, uh, is an important insight into answering the question of how did we get to be what we are today. Senator Bob Graham served the state of Florida for 38 years. These days, he's working as a writer, among other things. His novel, largely based on historical fact, is called Keys to the Kingdom.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, find great books about Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our great journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, you have here some unique historic photographs from the collection. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at today are called stereo views or stereograms. And it's essentially a small, thin piece of cardboard. They measure about seven inches by three and a half, four inches wide. And pasted on that piece of cardboard are what looks like two identical images, two print images side by side. And when you first look at it, 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 it might seem like an error, uh, right? And, and it's uh, a little bit difficult to understand what the point is. But the stereo views were very popular, really going back to the beginnings of photography in the mid-19th century. Uh, originally, they were produced on glass plate or wet plate uh, negatives. And then later on in the late 19th century, uh, they were printed on more commercially available dry plates and became readily available available throughout uh, the country and, and throughout the world. But the stereo views themselves utilize a interesting phenomenon known as stereoscopy. And this is the phenomenon that simulates how the human eye uses binocular vision. And what that means essentially is that our eyes are spaced about two and a half inches apart. And when we look at a single image, it appears, or at least the brain translates that into a three-dimensional image in our brain. Well, the stereo view essentially does the same thing. It takes two two-dimensional images that were taken with a stereo view camera, and those two images, when placed inside of a stereo viewer at a distance uh, roughly a few inches away from the face, it gives the perception of a three-dimensional image. So if you can imagine in the late 19th century, this was revolutionary. You know, here you could be sitting in your living room and be looking at or feel like you were standing in the middle of, of London or in the St. John's River here in Florida. So they were, became increasingly popular, and photographers and large studios began producing these stereo views in mass. And they came out in a number of different series. So, uh, for instance, tourists who were visiting, say, St. Augustine or Pensacola, could purchase a book of stereo views, bring them home, uh, and then that could be a, a popular uh, fireside conversation piece for all of your fellow visitors who maybe hadn't visited Florida before. They could kind of transform them 
themselves into into that space. Now, these special cameras, it's kind of interesting, they actually required two separate lenses. So the stereo camera itself was, was unique and really was a fascinating invention. The lenses themselves would have been placed about two and a half inches apart, roughly the same distance that our eyes are spread apart, and it would take two separate exposures of the exact same thing. So it would capture the same instant, but if you look at the stereo views, they're slightly off. You might see that uh, one side was a little bit overexposed, a little bit underexposed. But again, when you place that into the stereo viewer, it gives the illusion of a three-dimensional image. So along with the actual stereo view, in order to get that three-dimensional effect, it required a stereo scope, which is a small handheld device. It has a holder at the end, and essentially you would place the stereo into that holder, place your eyes through these small lenses, almost like you were looking through binoculars. And what that would do, it would shade out any peripheral vision. You know, so if you stare at a stereo view right now, like we were looking at, it doesn't look like it's three-dimensional. But if we were to block out any of our peripheral vision, place it inside of the stereo view, which is uh, distanced just far enough away from our eyes, about six inches apart, uh, stare at it again, focus as if we were looking through a pair of binoculars, it gives the illusion again of that three-dimensional image. Well, what did people take pictures of in these uh, stereo view images? Most of these images, as I said before, were kind of touristy in nature. Uh, you can think of them as the precursors to a postcard, uh, so to speak. This is one of the largest single sets of images we have are from the city of St. Augustine, which, of course, was a popular tourist destination in the late 19th and early 20th century, not only for wealthy visitors, but for anyone who really wanted to experience a little taste of the South. I mean, for many people, Jacksonville, St. Augustine, Northeast Florida kind of represented the end of the world, especially before the advent of the East Coast. Railroad. Uh, many people kind of came down that far south, may have ventured a little bit further in, taken a steamboat up one of the river systems. And that's kind of the, what we get. You know, when you look at a set of stereo views, you'll get an idea of what a tourist would have experienced, say, in 1890. Uh, looking at one here of Treasury Street in St. Augustine, we have a number of, of photographs of Bay Street, of course, photographs of the, uh, the fort, the Castillo de San Marcos. And then we have some great images of steamboats that are traveling up the Oklawaha River, the St. John's River, uh, the Suwannee River, all of these kind of famous waterways. But again, it gives you an idea of what someone would have experienced had they bought that ticket to come down to Florida. Well, it seems you also have a good number of images from the African-American community. Yeah, that's right. So outside of your what we would commonly think of as the touristy activities in the late 19th century, visiting these uh, old buildings, uh, hunting and fishing, the second largest subset of images deal with, as you said, African-Americans, which is a, a little bit perplexing when you think about it. But the nature of these images, of course, kind of depict this stereotypical notion of the poor downtrodden, you know, ex-slave who's living in the in the Jim Crow South. And I think that's an idea that many Northerners kind of bought into. So when they came to Florida, they wanted these pictures that represented what they saw. Here we're looking at an image of what looks like an elderly man in a box cart towed by an oxen. We have several images of these ramshackle uh, cabins with uh, people out front. Here we see some laundry that's lined out out front. Looks like a small subsistence farm. And some of the titles too, you know, gives you an idea of kind of what they thought. Here is a woman, it looks like she has a, a young woman bent over her knee and it says, quote, Aunt Venus hunting for Florida fleas, unquote. So, the, you know, they, they were almost kitschy in nature, you know, but, but again, it gives us a view into 
uh, somewhat at least, into the life of African Americans in Florida. So, you know, again, if you can put yourself in the shoes of, uh, say, a wealthy northerner coming to Florida and just kind of think about what they saw, these collections of images, I think, do justice to what that trip would have been like. Great. Interesting. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Ruben Askew is considered by many to be one of Florida's best governors. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. Ruben Askew was originally born in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and moved to Florida with his mom after their father had left him. He was an alcoholic itinerant carpenter during the Depression, so she brought uh, the kids down to Pensacola, and he grew up in in Florida. Went to Florida State, uh, got a law degree, served in the Army, became an attorney in Pensacola, and then, and then later on ran for the state house and, and, and the state senate, and eventually became president of the senate by 1969. That was Dr. Gordon Harvey, author of The Politics of Trust, Reuben Askew in Florida in the 1970s. He spoke to me about Governor Askew. Askew was elected governor in 1970 and campaigned hard against Governor Claude Kirk, who was the first Republican elected governor in almost 100 years. I always heard that this was a difficult campaign, Dr. Harvey tells me if he agrees with this assessment. Yeah, the the Claude Kirk Askew campaign got fairly dirty, and I don't think it's one of the dirtiest in Florida history, but it it got nasty at at certain times where uh, Kirk had called Askew a a pretty little mama's boy, and and Askew had said that Kirk had enjoyed being governor more than anyone he'd ever known, and it was bad for the state. Governor Askew is known as a popular governor and a Sunbelt governor because he came to office when the population of the state increased significantly. Yet... He was liked by a cross-section of the voting population. Florida was becoming a little less southern, a little more northeastern with the the growth of retirement age and the growth of South Florida as a new population base. But in a lot of these public opinion polls, most people said that they may not agree with Askew's policies or his positions, but they trusted him. And that was the overwhelming factor in in him getting reelected overwhelmingly in 1974 and his, his popularity that remained high even to the day he died. Askew served in the state legislature for a long time and was there during the pork chop gang years that epitomized rural lawmakers hostile to both civil rights and urban growth in Florida. I wondered how Askew fit into that political milieu. He was technically in the pork chop land, if you want to call it that, but he wasn't a pork chopper in terms of taking advantage of the, sort of the overwhelming political power that they had. Askew ran even from the first time in office, on, on racial equality and, and fairness in politics, which is sort of contrary to what the pork choppers were standing on. And so even though he got elected from pork chop region, he really didn't believe or, or stand on um, uh, pork chop platform policies. Dr. Harvey tells me how Askew was different from previous governors. 
Ending with Kirk and beginning in the 70s, you have a populace that's looking more for reforms. This is the decade of Watergate. People are distrusting uh, their government. They're distrusting national government. They don't trust uh, state government. And Askew comes in and says, listen, I trust you. You trust me. I'm never going to lie to you, but I'm going to speak the truth, even if it angers you. And so for his eight years in office, Askew was like this huge breath of fresh air where he would say what he believed to be right, even if it wasn't popular at the time, especially on busing. He came out for racial equality in schools and, and said that busing was the only way, short of neighborhood desegregation, to, to give blacks and whites equal opportunity in schools. And even when he said things as unpopular as that, he still went up in popularity ratings among Florida voters. It was, it was remarkable. Dr. Harvey describes Askew's achievements. Beginning in 1970, the South elected a whole slate of what we call New South governors who were elected by biracial coalitions thanks to the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And Askew came into office. He actually ran on a populist campaign of making corporations pay their fair share of taxes. And once in office, he enacted that in his first year in office, a corporate profits tax, the fair share plan. The next year, he uh, he stood uh, for equality of school uh, access with pushing busing. And next year after that, he passed one of the most transformational education reform policies in, in Florida history. And then the year after that, he, he made sure that Big Cypress Swamp, which was the feeder for the Biscayne Aquifer, was protected from development. Dr. Harvey leaves us with the lasting legacy of Governor Ruben Askew. I think you're going to find that Askew was, if not the greatest governor the state's ever had, he's in the top five for sure. And a few years ago, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University ranked him in the top 10 governors in American history, alongside of people like Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, uh, La Follette, all the greats that we study in textbooks, um, Askew's ranked up next to them. The thing that makes Askew unique, even among his New South, fellow New South governors, is that he didn't care about enriching himself. He didn't care about his own personal sort of agenda. He wanted to do the right thing for the state of Florida. And one of the things that he said when he was elected is he wanted to leave office so he could go down the street, walk down the street, hold his head high and believe that he had kept the faith. He'd been truthful and honest and done the right thing to, uh, to, to his state and for his state. And by all accounts, he did. That was Dr. Gordon Harvey, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. Islands in the stream, that is what we are. This is Florida Frontiers. The Florida Historical Society will hold their next annual meeting and symposium aboard the Carnival Sensation cruise ship May 18th through 22nd, 2017. The theme for the conference is Islands in the Stream, exploring history and archaeology in Key West and Cozumel. The conference crews will leave from Miami with a day touring historic sites in Key West and a visit to the spectacular Mayan ruins at Tulum. Paper presentations and roundtable discussions will take place aboard ship. Cabins are filling quickly, so visit myfloridahistory.org for more information. That's the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium aboard the Carnival Sensation, May 18th through 22nd, 2017. Reservations must be made through the Florida Historical Society. 
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen online at myfloridahistory.org or as a podcast. You can join the conversation on Facebook as well. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.